Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are continuing with our read-through of Catching Fire. We are looking at chapters five and six. So, Chris, can you give us a recap on what happens in those chapters? As they enter the District 11 Justice Building and hear more gunshots outside, Hamish leads Katniss and Peeta to a secluded place in the dome, so as not to be overheard when they tell Peeta about Snow's visit. Peeta is angry that he was kept out, and Hamish promises it won't happen again. The crew deals with the fallout, then continue on the tour through the other districts, seeing how some of them are boiling over. Katniss and Peeta begin sleeping in each other's arms to cope, and Katniss suggests Peeta publicly propose to her, which, after he does, Snow communicates to Katniss is not enough. Realizing she failed renews Katniss's vigor, as she gains a new determination to take her loved ones and flee. At a party at the president's mansion, they try as much of the delicious foods as they can until the prep team tell them about the drink the partygoers use so they can throw up and eat more. Katniss and Peter react to the abject inequality of this until Plutarch Heavensby, the new head game maker, asks Katniss for a dance and shows her his watch with a flash of a mockingjay on it. They then head home for a party at the mayor's house where Katniss sees a secret report of an uprising in District 8. Dun, dun, dun! Uprising. <laughs> it's less scary when, when you say it that way. <laughs> Sing it that way. Well, why don't we get into these chapters? What are the striking moments you're bringing to talk about? One is when Katniss and Snow are playing off each other. Oh, the fun in the we interviews. two have. Exactly. <laughs> Which is just such a great line mm-hmm. um, because it's just part of the narrative. It is sarcastic commentary on what's going on. It's just a really amazing character moment for Katniss to really get inside her personality. And I appreciate it because that that is a really fascinating moment because we see her and Snow playing off each other in a way that's supposed to read comedic, but is horrific and Mm -hmm. terrifying. So to have the two of them playing off one another in a public setting, it just makes me think about how often stories will have scenes in which the villain and the protagonist make moves against one another or have verbal sparring or physical sparring or these other kinds of things. And here, though there's a small element of that, I think, for example, in their their earlier conversation where they were saying, we won't lie to one another. The idea that Snow would also be honest with her in the same way she'd be honest with him. There's almost a mutual respect that we have that we see there. But here we're also seeing how, regardless of that mutual respect, there is no mutual power. Do you think there is actual mutual respect, though? Do you think either of them respect each other? I mean, and maybe respect is the wrong word. Maybe it comes with with incorrect connotations. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if if esteem is better or if there's something there, but, but... acknowledgement yeah and yet despite whatever that might be that relationship that acknowledgement there is such a power gulf between them the moment where Katniss is forced to tell jokes with him and alongside him I think really puts that into clear relief yeah it's it's kind of interesting because Now I'm kind of thinking about when he went to her house and was talking with her in the study. He was 
basically acknowledging you have power. Mm-hmm. He was trying to do it in a way that was not acknowledging that. And so I don't think she really felt the power she had because of the threats that were made. Yeah. And also just because, as Peta said in the previous book, she has no idea the effect that she can have. Mm-hmm. And so I think she doesn't realize how much power she actually does have. And the fact that Snow even bothered to go out and talk to her Mm -hmm. shows how much power she does have, really. Yeah, Yeah. because what if during her victory tour, she did continue to stoke the fire of rebellion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did it in more covert ways than, yeah, it could have had profound impact potentially. Yeah. But also, the districts aren't just waiting to see what she'll do. Right. They're... The ones that are organizing, the ones that are doing things, they're doing it without her having even gotten there. Absolutely, yeah. What about you? What moment struck you? Going back to Snow, who we despise, I was just like so cringing and bothered by him kissing Katniss on the cheek Mm -hmm. and digging his fingers into her arm and later puts his arm around her I'm just like stop touching her go away like ah it's upsetting totally it reminds me of like all those images of politicians like standing right behind young women or putting Mm -hmm. their arms around them or yeah just ugh, so gross exactly but on a more positive striking moment i just love the moment when katniss made Peta eat the rest of one of the Mm. dishes at the feast because she wanted to keep tasting things but couldn't bear to waste the food because that is 100 percent something that i would do to you i mean like hey you can eat more than me here (laughs) have this i want to go have more other good food um so just like that sort of friendly knowing each other i don't know it just it it feels very positive that Mm -hmm. that interaction between them totally i mean obviously against the backdrop of this wasteful feast um but but yeah that was just a a cute moment that just felt very real yeah it makes the way i imagine them at that party seem very natural Mm -hmm. and almost Mm -hmm. like it shows even more the comfort they can take in one another when they're in such an awful environment Mm -hmm. that they can have those things kind of when they can so easily support one another in those ways even those small ways Mm -hmm. and them coming from a similar background of both wanting to try everything Mm -hmm. because they would never have access to this even living in district 12 as victors they still don't have the ingredients they still don't have the chefs to, to be able to make this totally so to both be able to take so much enjoyment out of the food even though the setting is so terrible yeah but why don't we move into our from another point of view where we're looking at perspectives from people other than katniss well speaking of that party i was thinking what it might be like for those cake makers who are meeting pita Totally, yeah. Uh, Kind of following up on the conversation talking about last week regarding the kitchen staff on the train. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, this is another group of workers, laborers, specialized laborers, who are interacting with Katniss and Peeta as celebrities Mm -hmm. and able to 
utilize their craft in that interaction and how meaningful that would be for those cake makers yeah. to have PETA, who is in many ways the cent- one of the centers of this party, not mingling with the guests, but coming to talk <laughs> to them and talk about something that he's passionate about and learning from them. And he asks them questions. And it- I can just imagine PETA being so genuinely curious in those moments. Yeah, just what a treat that would be. Yeah, I mean, again, a, a strangely positive interaction mm-hmm. and exchange at this horrible feast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think that if this chapter was written from Peter's perspective, how much would he talk about that re- interaction? You know, Katniss mentions it, but Peter, I can imagine that being meaningful for him too, where mm-hmm. he's he's learning about something that he clearly is, if not passionate about knowledgeable of because he spent his entire life involved with baking and also especially with cake decoration as as a way that he could use his artistic creativity. Yeah, I mean, again, from a very privileged position, I could imagine the bakers in the capital when they were watching the games, PETA being the first Mm -hmm. person that they could relate to. Totally. Liking him and rooting for him. Who knows? Maybe they even donated some mm. money as a sponsor i don't know but i the baker's imagine. union <laughs> i'm kidding you think they there's have no unions, unions in the capital. <laughs> that's cute that's a very cute idea Chris. <laughs> but yeah i i could imagine that being the case mm-hmm. that that they would be excited about PETA coming specifically and spent a little extra time doing more flourishes when they were decorating and things like that. And I also kind of wonder, I mean, the fact that he got to take some of it home, they packaged things up for him to take home Mm. so that he could study their work more and things like that. I wonder how that would feel because not that baked goods are really doing amazing things for your your body, like nutrition-wise, but I Certainly just... not cakes. Exactly. <laughs> and certainly not the cakes that would be eaten at that party. <laughs> yeah. So, but even in spite of that fact, I wonder what it's like for the people who have spent hours making these things to have people just eat it and then throw it up. Yeah. And then eat more i i I don't know either it could be so commonplace that it's not something that they even think about or to me though outside of the whole injustice with food issue it would just feel kind of sad like this thing is just coming right back up you know and then is wasted not that it doesn't end up in the toilet anyway but (laughs) i don't know there's it just it feels different yeah That's so fascinating because, and it's one of the reasons why I really love this portion of our podcast, because being able to think about these other perspectives really do illuminate things because we've talked in the past about connections to where food comes from Mm -hmm. and how Katniss has those connections. And people who prepare food also have those connections that people who just consume food, like frankly myself and everyone at that party, Mm -hmm. don't have. And so it's not just about, yeah, I'm going to make something that's beautiful, that tastes good, but it's also, this is something that's nourishing. And you can't be nourished by something that you then throw up mm-hmm. 10 seconds later. Thinking about, yeah, the perspective of someone who has a different relationship to food just completely illuminated that for me. Mm. Yeah, because 
especially when it comes to desserts, it's having it as a special treat Mm -hmm. that makes it what it is rather than, oh yeah, I tried all 15 cakes and vomited them up halfway through. (laughs) You know, it's like then what you're actually, what those bakers are making as they're putting those ingredients together, as they're like spending this labor, I could imagine would feel kind of meaningless. Yeah. It's not special anymore. Yeah, that's fascinating. But then PETA comes in and actually appreciates things. Yeah, best boy PETA. (laughs) Although actually, I also want to talk about something from PETA's perspective. Okay. Because he gets angry at at Hamish and Katniss and he throws something, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that definitely struck me because of our previous conversations about how PETA does not show signs of toxic masculinity very often Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but here we see a violent destructive anger from him absolutely yeah it just it made me wonder for one to what extent that might be because being in the games changed him and the way he reacts to anger but it also made me think of how he might have felt afterward because i personally am someone who when i was young struggled with my temper and I made a really concerted effort to to kind of move as far in the opposite direction as possible, to, to not be someone who gets angry easily, mm-hmm. um, because I really didn't like that part of myself. So the few times where I do think that I I got angry in a way that, that thankfully I don't think was ever physically violent, even to lamps or whatever he threw, but I raise my voice or I, I do something that, that I really regret. It is, it is something that I, I, I might feel ashamed of afterwards or that I wish I'd handled differently. And that doesn't mean that in those situations I wasn't and in this situation Pete is not right to be upset, not right to be angry. Because mm-hmm. clearly he was left out of something that, that not only can make him feel disrespected, like they don't hold him on high enough esteem to tell him these things, but also that it does lead to things getting worse because him not knowing that information impacts what decisions he's going to make as we see with him offering some of their winnings so yeah i just i was really thinking about what it might be like for Peta to have lost that temper how he might be still processing his own emotions and how having an outburst like that might affect the way that he thinks about his own emotions and and that process yeah i mean i don't like the violent reaction he has mm-hmm. it, it's not towards a person, but right. still, it's it's still violent. And anytime cis boys or men are lashing out violently in any any way, it just it makes me feel unsafe. And even in a book, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. At the same time, like I can imagine how livid he must be in this situation that Hamish and Katniss just didn't tell him. They had information, they just didn't tell him. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, you're treating me like I'm inconsequential or too stupid. You're just, you're keeping it from me for whatever reason, but none of them are good. Mm -hmm. And all of them are insulting in some way. So the anger at that you know, and, and, and the hurt and the offense, but also just the regret and the guilt that you would feel because yeah. people are dead. And 
I guess I, I can't imagine what I would feel in that circumstance mm-hmm. at 16 years old. And I don't know how you can keep all of those intense emotions inside in such like a heightened situation where yeah. three people are dead and you feel like it's because of us, you know? So even though I don't like it, I I understand the reasons why, even though obviously he needs to learn how to manage that differently. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's just such a sad scene because he's losing control because of how emotional he's feeling about this thing. And we haven't seen that before from PETA. Yeah. We've seen him be frustrated, but we've never seen him in this state. And yeah, it's just, it's so sad. He was trying to do something kind. He was trying to help people in in a thank you for helping save his life. And now he's fearful that they're in so much more danger. And yeah, it's just, a, it's an intense scene. And do I wish he was better? Do I, do I wish that he could have handled it differently? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he can still be the best boy and become, and need to be better. <laughs> no one's still as good as he is. <laughs> Until we get to Sejanus. <laughs> We're in the past. <laughs> He's the bestest boy. Mm. Oh, but I love Peter. Oh, I, I mean, love Sejanus. I mean, I love Peter totally, but Sejanus is a better boy. <laughs> Why do you hate Peter so much? Oh my god! Can't believe that you host a podcast about the Hunger Games and you hate Peter. <laughs> Anyways, another person's point of view I was thinking about is Haymitch, and it's actually kind of retroactively like. When in that scene, Peter is talking about, even when we were in the games, you seem to have some secrets or have some sort of communication. And he never even sent me anything. So I didn't even have the chance to try to figure out anything mm-hmm. that was happening. And this is where Best Boy Peter comes in because he's like, obviously, I would have wanted you to choose Katniss. But still, you know, that doesn't mean I don't feel anything about it. But obviously, I would have wanted you to choose Katniss. And for the first time, she's really thinking about how it must have felt to just be lying there dying for a few days and not get anything. And then Katniss comes in and and she has gotten things. And Katniss has her own from another point of view section. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then Haymitch, after Peta leaves, is talking with Katniss about... Yeah, I I did choose you. And she's like, well, you like him better. He's like, that's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he had to choose one until they changed that rule. And he's telling her, you'll see how it is. Like, you're going to experience this. You're going to have to choose who you're going to try to bring home from the games. Because you can't bring two home. Yeah. And... Just thinking about Hamish having to make that call for you to actually like one of them better mm-hmm. and not take actions to save that one. And in in a different games, he would have put any of his resources towards saving PETA. Yeah. Because PETA is quite savvy and he 
did pretty well. He was even as he was dying was able to last and camouflage himself, you know. Yeah. Um, but when it came up against Katniss, she just had a better chance. And mm-hmm. so just thinking about how painful that decision and not just once, but every single time you're making the decision, every time the cameras are panning back over to Peta dying, just him having to deal with that. And then now having to face both of them, even though they don't have a long conversation about it, but it's, it's there and he knows that this was hurtful and there's nothing he can do about it. Mm -hmm. And these are now the two people he's closest with. Yeah. And that, can't be divorced from the relationship they have mm-hmm. yeah 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 it just was making me think about those choices that mentors are always making mm-hmm. in every games yeah and you understand why so many of them have a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms because mm-hmm. how do you handle that he's not even that old i think he's probably six or seven years older than me than us Whoa. Right? So to think about that, and as if I had been doing this, if you had been doing this for... 25 years. Yeah. I mean, less for us, but... Yeah. 18, 19 years. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. But why don't we move into our touch point section? This is where we look at things that are happening in these chapters and see parallels to things that are happening in our own world and society. So what do you have? Well, the first thing I want to mention was vomitoriums. Okay, let's let's get into it. <laughs> so obviously these chapters include this party where everyone is drinking this liquid that allows them to vomit so they can eat more food, which is awful for many, many reasons. But I kind of got thinking whether Suzanne Collins was trying to make an allusion to vomitoriums in ancient Rome. Because the capital is so much based off of this idea of ancient Rome. It's called Panem. There are all these Roman names. You know, it's very much kind of, I think, part of the way that the society is built around. And I find this particularly fun and engaging to think about because... So fun. I mean, awful. But (laughs) the idea that she might think back to these vomitoriums, because that's not what vomitoriums were in ancient Rome. (laughs) It's a very common misconception. Even the Wikipedia for it claims it's a common misconception (laughs) that people think that vomitoriums were these things in ancient Rome where people would go or rooms in their houses where they would go to vomit up food so they could eat more. And it was this idea of the excess that was a part of that that society. It's not true. Vomitorium is just a part of an arena, essentially, like a coliseum, where it allows for a large number of people to exit quickly to spew forth from the arena, Mm. which is where that etymology comes from. Interesting. But that, especially in the the 90s and early 2000s, became really well known as this this factoid, this untrue example of these these excesses of ancient Rome. And so, yeah, I think it's fun to think about if Suzanne Collins heard this idea and then... Whether she thought it was true or not was like, they would do this in the capital. Totally. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Because... It is ultimately one of the most powerful ways that she can show, and she does show, the immorality of the capital privilege Mm -hmm. in the stark contrast between that and life in District 12. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Speaking of ancient things, uh, <laughs> the main touch point I want to talk about is when Effie... <laughs> oh, yes. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yes. District ruins are going to be all the rage this year. Exactly. Is that And is how that she, as, as an expert on archaeology... <laughs> was really wanted to look around the District 11 Justice Building. Do you like building. the little laughing sticker I put next to uh, Portia being like, I have heard that <laughs> because the silence went on too long? I did, yes. That whole scene is amazing. But uh, certainly a touch point that I could not but think but about and, and talk about. Mm-hmm. In my notes, I literally just wrote, wow, in all caps. <laughs> 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 All Very in-depth notes. <laughs> yes. Wow. Because, for one, referring to this building that is playing an active role in their society as ruins <laughs> already says a lot about the way that they are seen by the capital. But this idea that they're going to be in vogue this year, mm-hmm. that it is going to be fashionable to know about and maybe visit ruins, and specifically district ruins. Oh, of course. Only district ruins. <laughs> it just, it it's so awful in the way that, that it, it thinks about these, because these ruins in the districts are only such because they're not kept up. They're not maintained using the vast resources the capital has. Mm -hmm. The capital probably doesn't have many ruins in it because they use those resources to maintain and, frankly, probably redevelop any kinds of older buildings they have. Well, and they also build arenas. That too, yeah. (laughs) Instead of keeping up the buildings in the district. (laughs) Take years and years and resources and resources to build these death arenas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, awful, awful, awful. But it it made me think a lot about how we think about historical buildings and ruins and things like that in our Mm. own society. This is something that a few years ago I got, I started getting involved with historical walking tours. And it made me really start to reimagine my ways of thinking about history and not only being tied to archives and written documents and photographs and things like that, but also being tied to the environment that we live in. And what it means for us as a community or as a society to have buildings that are historical. Even calling a building historical imparts meaning to that building and to the community around it. Calling something a ruin also imparts meaning. (laughs) Yes. And the ways that we use those kinds of terms in our society are also really illustrative because we have maybe 50-year-old federal courthouses that are historical monuments <laughs> right that they 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 are protected in these certain ways and, and all these other kinds of elements certainly here in the united states no most other places have buildings that are thousands of years old that i are mean the historical ones there is that but thinking about yeah maybe the last 10 years how many new historical buildings and monuments and things like that have been approved here in the united states while at the same time museums and archives in Syria are being demolished Mm -hmm. that are thousands of years old and are being destroyed by contemporary weapons that typically are not made in Syria, but are part of wider arms networks um, and munitions deals and things like that, that we are a part in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the 
idea of ruins in other societies, like these ruins in Syria, as they may be called, they are being ruined because of active systems that benefit the United States. Yeah. And at the same time, the ways that we refer to our own history is so much tied into the memorialization of our own power. And frankly, the oftentimes the legal systems that have led to oppression within our society and outside of it. Yes. Oh, Effie. <laughs> yes. Oh, effing oh, Effie. Effing Effie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking a lot about that as well and and kind of took it a, a different direction thinking a little bit more of the fad or trendy mm. part of it fads of oh it's in right now to wear fringe which mm. is native american right which and, served a purpose for those communities right so, yeah. it's not just a fashion accessory no but it helps keep things waterproof mm-hmm. yeah. or yeah let's let's have other indigenous patterns or jewelry or things like that be Mm -hmm. in fashion people who are not indigenous mass producing these things and making profits off of communities that were literally decimated like decimated bringing down to a tenth of what the population originally was yeah Yeah, another good example of this is people who aren't Native Hawaiian having luau's and things like that. Yeah. A really good article about this, it's an interview with activist Anne Ka'ala Kelly called Consuming Hawaii. It's so fabulous. Everyone should read it. So I'm going to put a link to it in the episode description. And then the last thing that this was making me think of is... How I get annoyed when non-Japanese people are, particularly Americans, like using origami cranes and, you know, just because they like them. Oh, they're so cool. You know, when I think about origami cranes, I think about Sarako Sasaki. Mm -hmm. And if you're not familiar with this story, she was a two-year-old who was in Japan when the U.S. dropped atomic bombs and got leukemia from radiation exposure. And while in the hospital, folded cranes from things like medicine wrappings or anything that she could find around while she was in the hospital, uh, fulfilling this kind of legend of folding a thousand cranes to get a wish. Mm -hmm. And... She died at the age of 12, you know, and then Americans, oh, these are so cool. It's like your country did this mm-hmm. to this person. And then, yeah, it's, it's just imperialist decimating people and cultures and then taking what they want from a culture because they find it exotic or pretty or charming or whatever. And it just being so frustrating when Mm -hmm. those things have meanings those things have histories those things bring up certain things in the historical minds of people who were affected or who grew up hearing about this yeah it's we went to war with the districts and there are ruins and we continue these inequalities and then we're gonna make it a fad you know yeah 
And also, I think people in the Capitol taking the symbol of the Mockingjay pin that was Katniss's and putting it on belt buckles and getting it tattooed and things like that. It's just privileged people feeling entitled to take what they want from the districts. Mm -hmm. Not even understanding the kind of radical (laughs) type of dissenting, subversive imagery and, and symbolism that can come with it in, you know, just just ignoring everything else from the districts. It's just like what they find cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. Um, and it was just like making me think about the commodification of figures like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, mm-hmm. who you can buy goods with their writings or their faces on them and are now just part of an economy pride things by companies that mm-hmm. then go and fund people who are actively trying to pass bills that oppress queer people yep exactly uh just how these things get in our society consumed into capitalism and mm-hmm. into that structure and yeah commodified in that way it also made me think honestly, about, like, the fact that there is a economy around people buying things with Jesus on them, when Jesus would Uh. not be a capitalist. (laughs) Turning over those tables, those cash registers. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, in, in our society, all these things get consumed into capitalism. In Panem, they all get consumed into the hierarchy, the, the the dichotomy between capital and district, and just this exploitative enslavement, essentially, that exists in the in that system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good on you, capital. <laughs> Another bad touch point is <laughs> we've got lots of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the touch points, basically. That's true. We haven't had really an uplifting touch point. (laughs) The only one was when I was like, hey, maybe I could read myself into Prim a little bit. Oh, yeah. That was the only only little thing. (laughs) We have to turn it personal because we turn it societal. We've talked about resistance movements Uh, and things like that. But they have to be resisting something. Why do we need them to begin with? Yeah. (laughs) But, um... I was thinking about when Plutarch is dancing with Katniss and her realizing, oh, you're the one who fell into the bowl of punch Mm -hmm. and him saying, I haven't recovered. And that was just reminding me of when people in our society like to use the word traumatizing Mm. all the time for things that are not traumatizing. Like they weren't traumatized they're they're diminishing what trauma actually is mm-hmm. by just using it. Here it's like, oh yeah, he was scared because an arrow went by. She wasn't trying to kill them or anything. Versus he's working with the people to make these games that put all of these kids in an arena to get traumatized before they die. Yeah. And one, in this case two, lives past it to then 
have those trauma symptoms yeah. for the rest of their lives. Yeah, they don't actually recover. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so for him to just use this and just not get it, you know, it's it's just how people flippantly use things. Yeah. Because in their own lived experience, they are so ignorant for how bad things can be for other people and what types of actually traumatizing events happen to people totally every day. yeah yeah one, one that's similar that you helped me to stop using was saying i'm starving when i'm really hungry mm. um because yeah mm. i've never starved in my life yeah katniss would be pretty annoyed exactly. if you use that right? yeah 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 that's a great point the last one i wanted to touch on is at the end of these chapters when katniss is looking at the screen of district eight and and the uprising that's happening there there are district eight rebels throwing bricks at people with machine guns Mm. that just brought to mind for me the image of palestinian little kids throwing a rock at an israeli tank just this vast difference in power and resources it's just, it's just so striking. Yeah. You know, what is a brick? I mean, a brick is more than a stone at a, at a tank. But similarly, machine guns are going to mow you down. Yeah. And what can you do against that sort of unequal power mm-hmm. um, and violence? Yeah. And it, it further highlights the courage it takes to do that type of resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen those photos, you should definitely just do a little Google search for Palestinian kids throwing rocks at tanks. And it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's people who don't have the resources to fight this power still showing their resistance, still saying you're occupying, still fighting in the small ways that they can Mm -hmm. well that was uplifting (laughs) Ah, i do what i can (laughs) well why don't we go into our wonderments what are you wondering about well first off in regards to those ruins for the first time i really started wondering about how pre-panem ruins exist in panem how ruins that come from before whatever catastrophe led to this dystopian world wait before the catastrophes or because of the test before the catastrophes or or because the catastrophes but okay. the things that you know panem seemed to rise from the scattered rem- remnants of survivors who existed in the north american continent yeah it just made me for the first time really think about when they refer to ruins when were these ruined? How are these ruined? Mm-hmm. Um, and how old are they? And to what extent are the districts still living in the remnants of a society that looks a lot like ours? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other wonderment I had was, does Katniss dance? Cause, yeah, she does. Well, that's the thing is she mentions how she does the kind of sway with PETA, but that the District 12 dances are all these ones that like go to fiddles and, and are kind of you know, probably more close to like line dancing and, and things like that that we have in our society. And yeah, just thinking about like Katniss line dancing is... I mean, we see her dance later. Do we? Yeah. Okay. 
So then I guess she dances. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I've, re- I've read the books one more time than you have. So. True. But I also just <laughs> was thinking, like, you know, what was the situation that, that led to her learning these dances? Did she do it with Prim and her mom? And, you know, was it something she did as a kid with her dad? Like, what was it that made that something that she spent time learning? Particularly when in the first book she kind of talked about how music wasn't really of value to her. Mm -hmm. Um, despite the fact that she clearly understood music and and still had music be a powerful thing that she engaged with. Yeah, I just, I would wonder, you know, is that something that is a privilege and too low on her hierarchy of needs to really engage with? I mean, if you're extremely malnourished and starving to death, you don't have the energy to dance. Totally, exactly, yeah. But what were your wonderments? So one of mine was, why was it that districts 11, 8, 4, and 3 mm-hmm. were ready to revolt. Yeah. Why those districts versus other districts, what is different in these districts or how these districts relate to the capital or how they're treated by peacekeepers or whatever it is, what made those districts more ready, especially 4, because 4 is part of the careers. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm just fascinated and I want to know, but there's no answers. Totally. I mean, 11, we could maybe say that it started earlier with giving the bread with Katniss and Rue being allies with Thresh sparing her. You know, there was a little more relationship there in this past games. Yeah, but I... I, I also see just the lived experience of them being so overly policed mm-hmm. has to have something to do with it as well. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a, a great question. Yeah, and also it would be interesting to know, because we also know that District 11 is huge, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what the sizes of these other districts that were ready to revolt are, and if larger districts feel a little more just just a little bit more able to have more people power behind them than a district with 8,000 people in it. Yeah, yeah. So the next point I have that I want to talk about is actually a spoiler for the end of this book. So if you haven't finished it yet, just skip about a minute and a half forward. So something I was thinking about is just about Plutarch's custom watch. Who made it? Mm. Watchmaking, I would imagine, would be a very specific skill. Yeah. But they have to be in on the revolution to some degree. They they have to be okay, at least, with resistors. Or probably okay with Plutarch coming in and paying them a lot of money to keep it quiet. Yeah, but how much more money could they get for the secret that he did this, Well, but I'm saying... In case they he told them that it was like because it's in vogue, and then he's like, mm-hmm. oh, but you know, in my position, I can't be seen having any preference for any district, so I'm, that's why I want it to be secret. Yeah, I don't know. it's possible. Yeah, yeah, but, that's why I just I have questions about that, yeah. and you know, great question. How many people are involved in this resistance, and if the meeting he was going to was actually for game planning mm-hmm. or if he was secretly meeting with Hamish for 30 minutes or, yeah. or something because obviously they already have contact. So 
yeah, was he meeting with any of the, with Sina, with any of these other people who are involved? Totally, yeah. Yeah, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know everything. <laughs> but why don't we finish up this episode with our intentions? These are things that we're taking from the chapter and applying to our own lives. From this conversation, I'm I'm really interested in the kind of artisanal labor that we see in the book. Cake makers, for example. People who have specific skills that are harder to mass produce. You know, capitalism moves away from artisanal works because mass production is a part of capitalism. Except when you get rich enough, then you only want one-of-a-kind things, for right? For sure, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about more of that kind of middle-class artisanal nature, I suppose. Mm. where you're able to have skilled labor, but it's not meant for, yeah, kind of mass-produced sameness. And so not only I think I'll keep an eye on that in Pan Am during our readings, but as I continue to try to expand my own class consciousness and anti-capitalist ideas, yeah, just think more about how that fits into our own society, into other narratives, and how those people have... A unique way of engaging with society themselves. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just not on my mind. What about you? What's your intention? Yeah, so something I had actually talked with you, Chris, about previously off mic, but thought I would bring it here is just kind of a way that I want during the rest of this read through to be in a small way contextualizing the districts mm. based off of where my clothes come from or my electronics come from and things like that. I mean, my clothes mainly just come from thrift stores or fair trade stores, but still. They um, got there somehow. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But when I'm hearing about people revolting in District 8, they work in textiles. So who are the people that I'm seeing revolting? Mm. You know, trying to contextualize it in a way that helps me also recognize, yeah, who is being exploited for things that I just use every day in my life. So I, I looked up for, for textiles. Well, the United States imports almost $128 billion worth of textiles and apparel. Wow. Uh, this was from 2019, so right before pandemic, so mm-hmm. yeah. And the top places that we import from are China, Vietnam, South Asia, Mexico, Indonesia, and some Central American countries. Mm. Those are the main places we're getting textiles and apparel from. So the manufactured goods. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not, Not the raw materials. Got it. And so, you know, since that is what people in District 12 were doing, I was trying to more picture people from those countries because those are the people who are supplying me with things and so yeah i'm just gonna kind of try to do that more as we continue on when we're looking at different districts what is their industry and maybe looking up where we get things from we're talking about district three and technology well where are our computers and you know things like that coming from so yeah yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting, impactful way of engaging with the text and, and making it resonate with our society. Yeah, I mean, because that's 
the point, right? Isn't that the point of the books? It's not just, ooh, entertainment with death and children. Yeah. It's a social critique, and we got to take that to ourselves, you know? Yeah, we got to critique society. <laughs> yeah. But, like, into our own lives. Totally, not not yeah. just the, the larger picture, which obviously the larger picture needs to be critiqued. Yeah. But the more aware we are of the things that we daily interact with, the mm. more informed we can make choices and... Um, you know, bring capitalism down. (laughs) Praxis. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, I think that'll wrap up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? We are going to be reading chapters seven and eight, where Gale throws some gloves. A challenge. (laughs) A duel. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media, our website, and the Patreon in our episode description. And we hope that you will consider joining us on Patreon to become a supporter of the podcast, which will also get you access to all the fun extra content and book club discussions that we're having with our supporters. We also record special episodes for our patrons, exploring some of the topics that our supporters find compelling. We'd like to thank Kimberly Tether Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo, Factor Designs at lacelet.com, or searching for Lacelet on Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.